that we are a child of God. We've been taken from a kingdom of darkness where we didn't know what we didn't know. And you brought us into a kingdom of light and showed us things that we thought impossible. And like Joe said, we thought perhaps this is as good as it gets and then you brought in the sweet potato. (laughs) And then we thought, wow, how good is that? And then you added nutmeg. Wow, what more is there, Lord? You are a good God. You have so much for us. You have so much for us. And Lord, we just want to present ourselves as a living sacrifice and say, come Lord Jesus and show us, show us who you are and show us the bigness, show us the more this morning and help our hearts to be ready and pliable and flexible and moldable so that we can not just receive, but we can let it solidify and cement and settle so that it becomes a part of who we are. And then our life outworks itself as a, as a result of who we are. And so our lives begin to read that wonderful, incredible story that shows others who you are. So Lord, we thank you for that truth this morning. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Alrighty, we're just going to do a quick recap. Did you enjoy morning tea? Yes? Okay, quick recap on where we've just come from. We looked at the fact that the dictionary says that the truth are in line with the reality or the facts, and the truth conforms with the facts, and we just thought, nah, not always, sometimes, but not always, because God's laws are higher than our laws. So um, let me see if this is going to work. Yep. Hmm. Not working? Mustn't be on. And then we looked at the kingdom of light is different. That thank you. Ah, oh, the little lights. Ah, oh, little lights gone off again. It's very sensitive. It's me. <laughs> okay, right. It. Let's have a look. There we go. <laughs> so sometimes we let the facts get in the way of our good story. We often get stuck in Plan B. We need to remember that God's ways are higher than ours, and that we need to renew our mind and not be conformed to those facts that keep us stuck. And that we can actually rewire our brain because it's not just a scientific fact, but something Paul says is necessary for us all through our life to rewire our brain. We're all going to get a hurt heart. That's okay. It's okay. It doesn't, it's not an indication that you're stuck somewhere. It's not an indication that you haven't forgiven someone. It's not an indication. It's just part of who you are. It's okay to have a hurt heart. It's just not okay to get stuck with a bitter spirit. That means we're stuck in the kingdom of darkness and we can move out of that into the kingdom of light by casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the kingdom of light truth, right? And then we move out of that. We didn't get time to look at that, but the Old Testament um, word for truth um, contains the first, the middle, and the last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So rabbis used used to say that the truth then is everything from the start to the end, and everything in between. Isn't that a cool thought? That's God's truth. And then uh, we need to, to, to use Paul's replacement therapy. 
So put it, things in place that whatever is good, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good report, whatever is anything is, is virtuous, whatever is praiseworthy, think on these things because God is a God of fresh beginnings and there we are on our wedding day. Our God is a God of fresh beginnings and he takes us into new fresh beginnings. That's who God is. Okay, thanks heaps for that. Let's move on from that. There will be some people here that had a revelation this morning or had a light bulb moment or something. Is there someone, can you put up your hand, if God spoke to you this morning through that message about the truth and the facts or the kingdom of light, specifically you feel like this was a moment in your life. This was a moment, yeah? Okay, I'm going to, I used this book, it's now used because I used it, so would you like to take that. <laughs> and, and I really pray that blesses you to help you understand how to move now forward in, into, into places in that because um, it was part of my journey, but I really believe it will, it will help you. I really believe it will. And is there somebody else? I think in that book, is there a little bookmark still in that book or not? Is that little, is that still there? No, it's gone. Somewhere. That's all right. I've got another one over there. Is there somebody else? Um, Let's run and get one of those little cards on the table, just one of those little plastic cards. Is there someone else who had a revelation moment, someone who really felt like, okay, I'm going to, skip, going to give you this little card um, and you can actually download a, a copy of the book with this card. If you use the code on that card, you can download a copy. So just take that and thank you. And that will give you access to, to download that. There you go. Bless you. Okay, we're going to move from that thought of, um, of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light and the truth and the facts into a concept that I've called taking me out of context. Taking me out of context. History belongs to people who don't disqualify themselves. <laughs> Sometimes we disqualify ourselves because we place ourselves in contexts that limit us and squash us and keep us small and keep us in places that we were never meant to be in. And so... Taking me out of context is a, is a thought, is a progression from where we've just come from that I believe is really necessary for us as women. I love this, um, the, the thought in this message because it's very, very applicable to us as women. Have you ever been taken out of context? It's infuriating, isn't it? It happened to me this week and I got a phone call from someone and they said, such and such said you said this. Really? Hmm. I don't recall saying that, and I don't recall the context being that. And so then I had to try and work through that conversation with that person, then ring the person who said I'd said that thing and work through that and how they actually got to that conclusion that Deb Candler said that. And it was like, seriously? Really? Did it have to get to that? Being taken out of context is infuriating sometimes, but there's another side to being taken out of context, and it's a side that's very positive. And God has been doing it all through history, and he's still doing it today for those who will not disqualify themselves. Those who get to a point where going, you know what, I'm not going to disqualify myself. I'm going to allow God to take me out of unhealthy contexts and uh, places that I was never meant to stay in and live in and place me where I'm supposed to be. So that's, the, that's the, the theme of this next message. You know why God can take us out of context? Because he's the only one who sees the end from the beginning. 
He's the only one that sees the whole picture. So, of course, he can take us out of unhealthy places and places somewhere else where we're supposed to be. He's always done it because he knows what's best for us. Do you remember the story of Sarah? So, Sarah, post-menopausal woman, unable to bear children of her own, probably going through hot flushes and um, just at that point of despair, just, nah, that bus left the station a long time ago and she's just got to get used to it. She's not having any children. And God goes, yep, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to choose you to be the mother of nations. I'm going to choose you and your name's going to go down in history and people are going to refer all their roots back to you. And everyone of faith is even going to trace their roots back to you. I'm going to choose you. Okay. Okay, God, that's an odd choice. A postmenopausal old lady who can't bear children to be the mother of nations. There you go. Only God could do that. And then how about Deborah? He already sees a wise, strong woman. She's already um, counselling the people. They've called her a prophetess. Already a strong woman. He goes, okay, well, I'm going to take her one step further. I'm going to take her even out of that context, which was a little unusual for the day. I'm even going to take her out of that. And I'm going to put her in a context that usually uh, only men fill. And that is the leader of an army to lead an army into battle to secure the victory for a nation. I'm going to choose her. Take her completely out of her context. How about Esther? I'm going to take a poor little orphan girl. Don't know where her parents are. I'm going to take her into captivity, into a foreign land where they speak a different language. She's got no political clout, no family, no influence. Can't even speak the language. She's got no parents and no family, raised by her cousin. And, uh, and I'm going to secure an uninvited audience with a king. And I'm going to use her to save a whole race of people from being annihilated. I'm going to choose completely out of their context, completely outside of their known framework and completely outside of what was normal at the time. All through Scripture, God unveils the incredible in people by taking them out of the context that they see themselves in and putting them in the context they're supposed to be in or God has planned for them. And often God will begin with a picture. And I know that you've got pictures in your mind and in your heart. I know you have. I have as well. You've got pictures. God's put them there. They're part of your divine imagination. You're able to do that because you can see physically, but you can also see spiritually. God's given you pictures, and often he'll start with a picture, and you've got that picture in your heart. And God said to people like Abraham once, what do you see, Abraham? And he goes, well, I'm looking up at the stars, Lord, and I can see more stars than you can poke a stick at, and just I don't know what it means. And God says, well, take a look at that. And just as there are that many stars in the sky, that's how many children are going to be credited to you, both physically and spiritually. That's about how many children you're going to have. But Lord, you know, Sarah and I, it's like, yeah, it's like God's gone. God says, well, when do the facts actually align with the truth in my books, Abraham? He chooses Abraham and he starts with a picture. What do you see? How about Ezekiel? He says to Ezekiel one day, what do you see? And Ezekiel goes, God, our nation, seriously, we're about to be taken into captivity. The nation's divided. We're in civil war. You know, everything we knew about you is just diluted and, and, and things are not looking good, Father. Things are not looking good, God. It's like everything's desolate. It's like everything's dead and dried up. And God says, well, why don't you just speak life to those bones that you see? Call life to them and watch what I can do with a nation when you start to see it happen, it can happen. And God says, what do you see, Ezekiel? Then he says to a man called Zerubbabel, I love the story of Zerubbabel. Um, And he says to Zerubbabel, what do you see? And he says, well, God, you've brought me back 
to build the temple after we were in captivity for so long and I've started and I did the foundation, I did everything you asked me to do and now political red tape has stopped me right there and there. I can do nothing more. And I know you've called me to this, but I'm powerless. We're stuck, tied up with political red tape and political arguments and dissension and there's nothing more I can do. And God says, what do you see? He says, well, I see mountains actually. I see mountains. He goes, well, call grace, grace to those mountains and watch them become like a plain before your feet because nothing's too big for our God. What do you see? And so this morning, I premise what we're about to say with what do you see? What has God put in your heart? Because what is in your heart is an indication of the context that you have before you, the context that you can move into. One day, God said to David, what do you see, David? King David said, God, I see a whole lot of things, but I see something quite incredible. In Psalm 144, 12, God's, David begins to see something that was quite outside the context of his day. He says that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth. Well, we know that's ridiculous, don't we, for a start. Who's got sons? Grown up in their youth? Anyone? Anyone has a son that grew up in their youth? No? <laughs> Anyone had a son that knew everything? at 12, and then at 16, didn't need to be told anything. Yeah, okay. So that's ridiculous right there. Sons grown up, sons, sons uh, maybe as plants grown up in their youth. So what David is seeing is something quite extraordinary, that we're going to have mature, strong, thinking young, wise thinking young men. That's what he's seeing. That's, that, that, that's something that's, that, that's been God revealed to him. And then he goes on and he says that our daughters may be as pillars sculpted in palace style. Well, that's totally ridiculous. Because women were not pillars sculpted in palace style in David's day. They were not pillars in the home, politics, business, religion, community life. Men had that privilege, not women. So that's David almost, I think he would have kept that secret for a while because you, you reveal that to the general public and they just laugh at you. David's lost his marbles. That ain't happening here. You know, that, that isn't culture. That isn't kosher here. Women didn't have that. With the exception of a small amount of wealthy women, who uh, were given uh, some, some forms of education, daughters of wealth, wealthy aristocrats. And, but other than that, women had no public voice or opinion at all in David's day. Women in David's day were equal to slaves at best and sometimes animals at worst. And that's the truth. That was the culture that David was in. Women, thousands of years, even before David, thousands of years even before King David, and then thousands of years after King David, the state of women reflected something that happened in a garden long, long ago called Eden. The state of women reflected something that happened long, long ago in a garden called Eden. Something happened in the garden that took humanity outside of the context that God had desired for them. And ever since, God has been revealing things into humanity's heart to bring us back into the context that God first created for us. You see, God in the Garden of Eden created humanity. Some of you are going to twitch twice when I, when I, when I say this or teach you this, but in the Garden of Eden, when God created, he created the Adam, the Adam. We think God created Adam, and the first thing our mind goes to is what? A man? right? Because Adam, man's name, Adam, God created the Adam. The Adam means from dust of the earth. 
So the writer of the Bible is getting concepts that God has given him and he's writing it so that we can wrap language around it, so that we can speak of it and teach it. But remember, the Jewish mind doesn't go to form, it goes to function. Remember that. So we think differently than the writers of the Bible thought. When, when God created, he created the Adam, genderless, neutral. The original Hebrew manuscripts teach us genderless, human, the Adam. God created the Adam. And then with the Adam, it goes on to talk about that he created um, you know, animals and creatures and, and the Adam named the animals and, and, whatever, and found that there was no one equal to him, found that there was no fellowship, no oneness with him. The creator, Trinity, a fellowship of three, three divine self-distinctions in the one essence, the one united essence is the Trinity God that we believe in, Father. We say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because we have human language only to use about God, but he is not a, a, a heavenly father as fathers are here on the earth. And neither was Jesus a son as sons are born to people on the earth. But we have language to describe Trinity because we have nothing else but language. And so we use language. But God, the Trinitarian three self-distinctions in the one divine essence began to create. And the Adam looks and doesn't see the same fellowship that the Trinity who created him has and enjoys. And the Adam looks at every animal and sees that there is nothing to have that fellowship. He is already, the Adam is in fellowship with God, but there is nothing to share that fellowship with on the earth. And so God takes from the Adam something that is in the Adam and pulls the something out and creates from the Adam the Ish and the Isha, male and female. And so now there is not one Adam, but there is an Ish and an Isha, a male and a female. And together God says, have dominion, rule the earth, enjoy one another, enjoy the earth that I've created for you. And so this fellowship of oneness that the, the Ish and the Isha enjoy with one another and with God is sublime and it's beautiful and it's whole and it's pure and it's faultless until something happens, until the ish and the isha begin to strive with one another and strive with God. They begin to strive with God and one another. You see, God gave humanity a human will because without that, we cannot love. I cannot make you love me. If I do, you're not human and that's not love. Love is freely given and freely received. There was always an element of risk in the creation. The Ish and the Isha begin to strive. When did it happen? I don't know. Did it happen soon? I don't know. Did it happen after a really long time? I don't know. But they began to strive with one another and with God. And the whole picture of the apple eating and all of that metaphors to tell us that something cataclysmic happened in the garden that would affect humanity from that day forward, from that day forward. You see, when men and women strive against one another and strive with God, we can only call that sin. And so we use the word sin entered the world. So sin now has become a part of the world that they now live in. And when the sin striving occurred, it affected everything. It affected everything for all time. 
God warned them. God warned them. He said in Genesis 3, he says, the consequence of your striving with one another will be this. The outworking of what you have begun will look like this. He will rule over you. And you will now have to strive for his affection. Because the male, the ish that I created, and the testosterone within him, in him, and all I created him to be in his personal self-distinction, will use that now to strive against you and rule over you. And the isha, the female, with all that I've created her to be and everything that's within her, will now strive with him for equality. She will strive with him to, to get his attention or to manipulate him in certain ways to get what she needs because she had her every need met before that, and so did he. But now she has to strive for that. So something happened that would affect humanity for all time in that garden. You see, the beautiful thing about that whole scene in the beginning was that God breathed once and created twice. He breathed once into the Adam. The breath of God existed in the Adam. He breathed once and he created twice. And out of the Adam, we see the Ish and the Isha emerge. One breath, two representations of God. Breathed once, created twice. And out of, the, out of that one breath, he says to the two personal self-distinctions, go and rule the earth, have dominion over it. But when they began to strive, they actually ruled over one another and had dominion over one another. And so oneness in the Garden of Eden became otherness. We moved from oneness to otherness. And for all time, there has been otherness, striving, differences in the world. So David sees this picture that women... Our daughters will be pillars sculpted in palace style. And it was totally outside the context of his day. Totally outside the context of his day. You see, when David saw this picture, his culture was already, already heavily influenced by the Greek storytellers. See, the Greek philosophy had already taken hold of the world before David. Greek mythology and philosophy had ruled the world that even David was in. That belief had been exalted above the God that David grew to, knew, to know. At school, you may have studied English literature, like I did, and you may have heard of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and Hippocrates, maybe some of those Greek philosophers and storytellers. Well, they were, the, they were the box office hits of Athens at the time. You know, they were the big stories of the day. Those were the stories that told humanity who they were, why they were here and where they came from. The Greek philosophers ruled the world. If you wanted to know where we came from, we came from the Greek gods. They created us. They laid the foundations for everyone's belief about themselves. And, 
they wrote about 800 years before Christ, so it means David would have known of these stories that ruled the world. The famous Iliad and Odyssey, I studied them in school. They were written 800 years before David. They were already well known. They had already were established in the culture of the day. They're still studied in the halls of universities and, and, uh, and debated and talked about in the, the schools of literature throughout the world. You see, the story of women, according to Hesiod and Homer, went like this. This is how it went. There once was a time when man existed peacefully on the earth without any women. This was the Greek storyteller's version of how things were created. Men existed without any women, but the Greek god Zeus, god of thunder, in a vengeful rage against a lesser god, contrived the most loathsome and horrifying of all punishments. He created a woman called Pandora. From her is the race of all women, the deadly race who live amongst mortal men to their great trouble, they wrote. Pandora, um, the story here is Zeus's daughter. She was created to punish mankind because um, it's a very long story, but she was given a locked box and told never to open it. Curiosity got the best of her and she opened the box. Evil, hate, envy, crime, sickness and disease escaped from the box into the world. But hope was also hiding in that box. So according to the Greek storytellers, women were the source of all evil and hatred, vengeance and strife and war and disease. All of that was a result of woman. According to this belief, every woman that Zeus created came from these sources. Are you ready? So you came from one of these sources. The long-haired sow, the evil fox, a dog, the dust of the earth, the sea, the stumbling and obstinate donkey, the weasel, the delicate and long-maned mare, the monkey, or the bee. She was commendable, but very rare. You'd only find like one in 20 of her. So you came from one of these sources, according to these stories. Hippocrates was another one of these philosophers, very famous in his day, known today as the father of modern medicine, still today. Hippocrates, they call the father of modern medicine. This is where we get our word Hippocratic Oath. When doctors have to um, recite the Hippocratic Oath after they'd finished their study, it's after Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine. This is what Hippocrates taught in this day. He taught that all seamen were small men. They were tiny little men. And they were impregnated into a woman. But because of the evil nature of every woman, sometimes she was able to subvert or overcome these little men and a deformity would happen and a girl would be born. They, 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 were, the, they were the stories. So when you were born a girl, you were already behind the eight ball. If you were born a girl, you were, you, you were always going to be inescapably lesser in the world. You were always inescapably going to be positioned somewhere where you could never move from that. There was no movement from that. You couldn't elevate yourself. You couldn't escape that. You were a woman. You were born that way. Rome adopted the common policy and acceptable practice for abandoning little girls because they became too much for parents to financially care for and look after. They became a, 
a liability to families. And it was common practice and a law that you could abandon your little girls and leave them beside the road. And if someone was kind enough to pick them up or they may be picked up and sold into slavery, then yay. Otherwise, they'll be left there to eat by, eaten by wild animals and just die. You could leave a baby girl by the side of the road. That was law, but you couldn't leave a baby boy by the side of the road. That was that you, you would be fined or arrested for doing that in the Roman Empire. According to these teachings, she was the curse of all suffering, cause of all suffering and conflict. She was a pawn in men's power plays. She had no active role except duties allocated to her. No possessions of her own, no gods or belief of her own, no identity. She was always the wife of, the mother of, the sister of, the mistress of, the auntie of, the cousin of. She had little value and she was only necessary for acquiring sons. Now, of course, women were... Um, some women were loved by their husbands and certainly treasured, but they were always treated unequally, always treated. And if you crossed a male, no matter how close the relationship, he could do with you what he liked because that was the law. How very different are those stories from the creation story that we just read? God breathed once and created twice in, a, in an environment of perfection where every need was met where there were two self-distinctions from the one divine essence of God, created in oneness, uniquely individual, and yet oneness of fellowship, no striving, no striving, and all from one breath of God. How very different are these stories than the beautiful Eden story that we know to be, very, known to be true. And God created and said, this is very good. When Zeus created, he said, this is very bad. Totally different stories. God gazed enthralled at his own handiwork and was so pleased at how he had reproduced his own image in this beautiful context. So can you see why David's picture of women is so bizarre, so outside the context of his day? Women as pillars sculpted in palace style, that just, that just wasn't the picture in David's day. It just wasn't happening. So why, why pillars? Why did David use the illustration of pillars? I reckon he used pillars because pillars were always used in architecture in David's day, and they still are today. Pillars are very, very unique in, in architecture, in the dwellings that we use to dwell in. Pillars um, are designed to bear weight. This is, this is the remain. Let's go back to that one because this is the remains of one of the temples to Zeus in Pergamon. I visited that a couple of years ago, and these are all around the Roman Empire, the old Roman Empire. Um, and these pillars still stand today, and that's one of the remaining temples to Zeus in Pergamon. They were all over the place, and David would have been very familiar with them in his day. So why pillars? Okay, well, pillars do three things in architecture. They do three main things. Pillars bear weight. Pillars help to hold up a ceiling. So architects use pillars because they hold up a ceiling, and when I look and see that the way the, the, way the Middle Eastern mind worked... It was always a functional thinking mind. And so when David used the word pillars or the concept of pillars, he was thinking bearing weight. Who bears weight? Leaders bear weight. Responsibility and covering bring us into the, the context and the, the visual imagery of weight bearing. You know, so pillars are the fabric of society. Pillars um, hold up structure. They hold up a ceiling. And when women are pillars, you know, they, they didn't, 
They didn't have that concept in David's day of holding up weight, of, of having a covering. But when David saw women as pillars, he saw a covering over the empire. He saw a covering over God's people. He saw a covering over his own household, that women will be pillars that hold up the weight of responsibility, hold up the weight of leadership, hold up the weight of covering. Faith, philosophy, what we believe about ourselves will be the roof, the covering that are held up by these pillars, these women. They're going to rise up and become this. It was unusual for David to think that because it was never seen as that in his day. That's not what they had. It's not the position that they were afforded in David's day. He saw them as pillars bearing weight, the weight of leadership and responsibility and covering, anointing, creating, change agents. Pillars also reinforce structure. They reinforce structure. Pillars help to hold up what has been built. Pillars help to hold up walls that protect and surround. You know, there's something very precise in their placement. You don't just, you don't just put a pillar anywhere in architecture. There's a precision about where these pillars will be placed. It's very deliberate about their role. Where they will be positioned will hold up the dwelling and the building, so they must be strong. In fact, mostly pillars are stronger than the building itself. Because long after buildings have gone, what do we find in ancient architecture? What's remaining? The pillars. Pillars hold up walls. and They speak of longevity. They speak of legacy. They speak of something that, that survives long after people are gone. David saw women as pillars reinforcing structure. And then David saw women as pillars. And the third thing that pillars do is provide a grand entrance. Pillars, pillars provide a grand entrance. This is the Vatican in, in, in Rome, and that's called St. Peter's Square. Can you even count how many pillars you can see in that, <laughs> in that picture? It's quite magnificent in reality. But pillars speak of something grand. If a, if a house is built with pillars at the front, it's almost like, wow, there's something grand about this house. And you, you want to go and have a look inside, right? If it's like, if it looks this good on the outside, I really would like to get a look at that on the inside. I really would like to see on the inside. And so pillars provide a grand entrance. And David seeing women as pillars, he's thinking they usher people in to faith. They usher people in. They give, they give us the, the outward salivating presence view, uh, understanding uh, that there is something more than just what you see on the outside. It's almost like they give this, if you think this is great, wait till you see what's inside. They provide a grand entrance into something quite magnificent. And David was seeing women as pillars. They provide, they hold up, they hold up weight. They hold up a roof. They, they, they create structure and hold up structure. And survive long after the structure's even gone. They speak of longevity. And they provide a grand entrance. So when David w was beginning to see this picture of women as pillars sculpted in palace style, it was like, that was so out of David's context. That was so out of the context of David's day. But he was seeing something that God was showing him. 
that was bringing him back to his original context in the garden before the striving happened. Let's fast forward our story. Let's fast forward our story to the time of Jesus, to the time of Jesus. One day, Jesus went to visit his friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. We know the story. We've heard it preached and we've read it many times ourselves. Jesus comes to their house, familiar with them, comes inside, and we read that the two sisters, who are very different, begin to outwork their uniqueness and their differences in the presence of Jesus. And one of them scurries around working and putting things into place and cooking and getting everything right. And the other one, Mary, she leaves all that and she comes and sits at the feet of Jesus. Now, I've heard this preached since I was at knee-high to a grasshopper, and every time I've heard this preached, I've heard it preached about the two natures. I've heard it preached about, you know, Mary's this, and and, and Martha's that, and, you know, and and, and almost what comes out in the preaching of this, in my experience, what usually comes out of the story is that, you know, there's nothing wrong with Martha. It was so good. It was really good if you're a Martha, you know, that's really good, but really Mary's the special one. Mary's really more special because she sat at the feet of Jesus. You know, she sat there and like, you know, don't get so busy that you can't sit at the feet of Jesus. And Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. And it's like, come Lord Jesus. And she was just like, you just got to be more like Mary because it's not that they ever said it, but it sort of came out that way. You sort of got the picture that it's better to be Mary than Martha. Sort of what I used to get. Here's what I reckon really happened. When you understand what Jesus was doing and you understand how the Jewish mind worked and how Jesus called disciples, here's the extraordinary thing that's often missed in the story. When Mary came and sat herself at Jesus' feet, it was audacious, outlandish. It wasn't allowed. She should never have done that. How dare she do that? That was outside of her context. She wasn't allowed to do that. Her culture did not permit her to do that. No wonder Martha was ticked. It's like, Jesus, are you serious? Tell her to get up and come and help me. And it's not as if she needed help. She was really good at that. It's just that Mary postured herself in the position of a disciple. Only a disciple was allowed to sit at the feet of Jesus and only disciples were men because only men could be educated and so only men could go through the three three levels of schooling that were necessary to become a disciple, to follow a rabbi. So you had to be a man to be educated. So you had to be a man to go through the three schools. So to be a disciple, you had to be a man. You could only be a man. So to follow Jesus, you had to be a man. To sit at a rabbi's feet, you had to be a man, okay? So can you see what's happening here? Mary leaves her context of what women were supposed to do. And she came and postured herself and sat at the feet of Jesus. And Martha got ticked. She's, how dare she? She's not allowed to do that. That's not our role. She sat at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus looked at Martha and said, Martha, Martha, you know, your sister gets it. You're allowed to. It's okay. Come, you can come too if you want. 
come and sit here. Come sit with me. I'm like, let's just sit together. Come join the circle, Martha. Come on. It's like no one's disqualified. No, there's no roles that dictate who is and who isn't. There's no, there's no parameters that says who's in and who's out. Martha, Mary gets it. Your sister's just got cottoned onto something. I'm not ticked with her. I'm not angry with her. In fact, I'm actually sitting back going, wow, Mary, really? Didn't know you had it in you. Good for you. And she came and postured herself as a disciple. I reckon if there were other male disciples around, they would have been ticked. They would have been ticked. And Jesus goes, no, no, no. Mary chose the better thing. What was the better thing? Mary took herself out of a context that confined her and put her into a context that opened the world to her, that, set, that put her back into the Eden order, equality, sameness, individuality, in unique oneness. Mary got it. And so Jesus commended her for that. Can you see the big difference in the story? Can you see what's going on here now? So Mary took herself out of a context that confined her and put her in one that was always God-ordained. Remember, if you, what we allow to define us could confine us. Here's the, here's the picture of, um, painted in 1580 by Tinoretto of uh, the Mary and Martha painting there. You have to remember that what we allow to define us could confine us. It's a very powerful, very powerful concept to remember. What you allow to define you could confine you. Sometimes we have to take the first steps that take us out of confining contexts and choose contexts that are more in line with God's loving, expansive picture for us. Contexts that bring out our lovely. Contexts that bring out the extraordinary. Contexts that bring out the incredible in us. And confining ourselves to roles, positions, mindsets are confining. They're not liberating. Is this, is this a women's liberation talk? No, 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 no. We've already been liberated, ladies. This is not a... We don't have to have a women's liberation meeting. It's already happened. It's like, seriously, we've done that. That happened way back, you know. Now, don't have to do that. It is, it is a message of truth. It's a message of truth. Am I crusading something? No, Jesus already did that for me. I'm just repeating what Jesus did. I'm repeating what God did in a garden long ago and reminding us that there is a context that we need to continuously bring ourselves back to and that is a context of value, a context of incredible um, God-stamped divineness on us. Remember, God breathed once and created twice. You carry the breath in you today. That breath is carried in you. You breathe it out into your children and they breathe it out into their children. We're not just having babies here, people. We're breathing life into generations that breathe life into generations that breathe life into generations. And we create legacies through mindsets that come from Eden, not from hell. You know? When anyone defers back to those uh, passages in, in Genesis where they say, God said he will rule over you, it's like, yeah, but that was after like the whole sin and striving thing happened. God was just saying, now that you've done this, this is how it will look. God didn't create that. He wasn't, he wasn't mandating that. Like, no. He was saying that after the striving and sin happened. And he's going, this is now the consequences, people. This is, this is what it looks like when that happens. 
So people that defer back to that when they want to talk about men and women, it's like, going, it's like, it's like wanting to teach about marriage, let's go to the, to the divorce passages. It's like, what? Craziness. No, 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 God created something absolutely perfect in the garden. And from, for all eternity, he's been bringing us back to that context, bringing us back to that context, bringing us back to that context. Now we carry that breath. We carry that breath. And we have the opportunity to bring women back to that context. We have the opportunity, first of all, to change the context that we're in and then to bring other women with us back into context that bring out the incredible in them, bring out the extraordinary in them. Sometimes it takes a brave step like Martha to step out of a context that you can find yourself in and step back into a healthy context or one that's going to open the world to you, open the doors again, throw back the curtains, let the sunshine in, bring you back to that place that God always intended for you to be in. Open the extraordinary. I am just going to um, let you watch a little YouTube clip that I think is really delightful, and it'll give you a little giggle. And uh, it's just going to drive a point home that says that God is in the process of bringing us into a context to release the extraordinary in us that he already put in in the Garden of Eden. Let's have a watch.
She can, all people can, if you want, you can. How did you get into dancing? I had been a dancer from the age of two and a half, like lots of little girls, and I gave it up to get married. I had four children. Then when did you pick up dancing? I went to live in Spain with my husband, and unfortunately, after 18 months, he died. And for something to do, I went to Nico's Dance Academy to learn something totally different, and this is the result. My grandmother is 93 years old, and I just kept thinking of her when you were being thrown around. <laughs> and um, I think she would have wanted me to press my buzzer for you as well, so me and my nan are going to be right behind you, and I hope you win, Did you love that? <laughs> and you know, I, I really believe that, um, you know, sometimes it just starts out slow and normal, 
until it all goes ballistic. <laughs> and I really think it's supposed to get ballistic. I don't think it's meant to be slow and normal. I think we're all supposed to go straight to the lives. <laughs> it's a, straight to the lives. And I, I really think that when David wrote, our women are as pillars. It was ridiculous in his context, but he saw something so different than the context that he was in. And I really believe today that there is something of truth in our Bible, in the book of Genesis, that is quite extraordinary, that takes us straight to the lives. It takes us out of the contexts that we've put ourselves in and confined ourselves in. And I believe you've been made uniquely and individually and that God has, has placed within you a DNA that beckons for you to just break out of the context you've confined yourself in and allow you to be you and bring out the extraordinary, bring out the extraordinary, the exquisite, the amazing and the wonderful. God is a good God and a unique God. I love that. So you might be thinking your life is slow and normal but it's about to burst open. <laughs> it's about to burst open and, and we're supposed to go straight to the lives. So let's just seal this moment um, this morning. Let's just stand together and, and just praise God that he's created us on purpose, with purpose and for purpose, that we were created with an Eden design indelibly printed on our hearts and in our DNA, that there is a uniqueness to women and to men, that we were created with one breath, two expressions from one breath, complementing one another, this wonderful unity in diversity as God created. So whatever context we find ourselves in this morning, let's remember that we were created as pillars. You and I bear weight. You and only you know the weight that you have borne over the years. Only you know what you've carried only you know what your shoulders have had to bear over the years. But God also knows. God knows. And he says to you, I, I remind you of that, not to put pressure on you, not to raise the bar again for something you have to achieve, achieve or aim at. I'm, I'm, I'm just reminding you again to show you that I made you with strength and dignity and honour. The weight that you bear is something already in your DNA and it's something quite magnificent. And people have watched you and have been transformed and changed by watching how you've borne the weight of what you have as a pillar, as my daughter. And some of you have held up structures in your family, in your community, in your church, in your relationships and you've held up structures and God says, I'm not telling you this to put more pressure on you or to make you strive to be something you feel like you don't have. I'm going to fill you with my spirit so that you see that the structures you've held up over the years are going to live, those, those pillars that you've reinforced are going to live longer than you. You, you. you have actually set in place legacies that will continue through the generations. Long after you're gone, what you have carried, what you've upheld, what, you have, what you've held together will be the fabric of what makes legacies and generations that know me and serve me and make the world a better place. And some of you have provided a grand entrance for so long, even when your own grand entrance to your life, your health, your relationships, your finances, have not, been, have not looked so grand to you. 
you've continued to be a grand entrance into my kingdom. And I, I remind you of that this morning, not to put pressure on you to perform or have an outward appearance of something that you're not, but to remind you that you are something. You are something. You are a pillar. That You do provide a grand entrance. People have watched your life. People have come into my kingdom because of you. So, Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you for that. This morning, Lord, we just want to find that inner pillar in ourselves. Holy Spirit, help us to pull out that inner pillar that's in each of us. Lord, it might mean taking ourselves out of context that have been restricting or unhealthy, taking ourselves out of context that have confined us. Lord, we want to be moved today into more God-shaped contexts, contexts that are designed for how you've created us. Lord, with the ancients, you often started with what do you see? So, Lord, I pray that today you will revive and fan the flames of those pictures that we had when we were younger, those pictures we, we had before it all went wrong. Lord, those wonderful dreams and pictures that, that you gave us, Lord, I pray that you will re- we will revisit them and you will fan the fires, the flames of those dreams and visions again today, Father. Give us clarity of those things. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that your word says that you through us diffuse the fragrance of who you are. Lord, I thank you that there is a fragrance that's coming out of us that, that smells like the beauty of the Garden of Eden. It smells like the Eden order. It smells like dignity and grace and authority, humility. It smells of destiny. It smells of grand entrances into the kingdom of God. So, Lord, I thank you that you're revisiting those things with us today. I thank you, Lord, that you're taking us back to those incredible places. I thank you, Lord, that you're taking us into contexts that align with your loving and expansive picture for us. Your picture that will bring out the extraordinary. I thank you that for each one of us today, we're going straight to the lives. (laughs) I thank you, Lord, that for each one of us, there is an extraordinary within us that's still waiting to be revealed, still waiting to bust out, still waiting to be be, uh, just... uh, demonstrated before the world, enacted, lived out. Thank you, God. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for bringing us into those wonderful places, contexts that reveal who you are and your great design over us. We thank you for it. Help us, Lord, as we, as we, as we regain that, receive it afresh, that we might also help others to come into those healthy contexts in their lives. And Lord, as we breathe that life into others, those others will breathe life into their others and those lives will breathe that life into theirs. And so, Lord, the world will be morphed and shaped back into the Eden order, into the context of this beautiful garden where it was known by its oneness, not its otherness. So, Lord, I thank you for that for all that means to each one of us here, and for all the churches represented here, for all the families that are represented here, 
all the women in all the contexts that are as diverse as each woman is. Lord, I thank you that you are uniquely stamping your picture of what that looks like in each scenario. Lord, we receive it from you. And Lord, we take it into our week, knowing that you will unfold that and bring clarity to that as we, as we leave here. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We receive it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Deb. Before you go, now there's a table over there. Can you tell me what's on that table for the girls? So there's